Christ right now that we bow before and humble ourselves before as we come under the authority of your word. There is none like you, Jesus. You were before all, you are in all, and you will reign for eternity for all who you have called to yourself, have repented of their sin and confessed you as their Lord and Savior. God, that day is coming soon. And we wait with great expectancy of the guaranteed hope that we have for all who have called on your name. And so, Father, please come continue this work right now. I pray we would not come under your word with pride right now. But our heart's cry would be, Jesus, help me to love you more right now. Help me to love you more. Change me. I'm not approaching you with pride, but I'm humbling myself under your word. Convict me, strengthen me, help me, encourage me. Lord, I pray for special encouragement for those who are feeling weak or weary or discouraged in this place today. Right now, this would be just a time of release as we cast our anxieties on you because you care for us. You love us. And you went to the cross and said, I'm ready to take that. Are you ready to give it? I'm ready to bring that healing. Are you ready to receive it? Jesus, right now, we just choose to do that as an act of faith, an act of humility. God, would you remove all distractions from this place that we would hear clearly, Holy Spirit, please give your understanding. I can't do that. I need your help. Please guard my mouth from error. Say what you want to say and do a saving and sanctifying work in your house today. Church, if you agree, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. What a blessing it is to be back in the house of the Lord with you today. Let's open up our Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. If you do not have a copy of God's Word in front of you, please put up your hand right now. And our ushers are coming forward. They want to put a copy of God's Word in front of you so you can continue to follow along. We're going verse by verse, line by line, through the book of Titus. And it's on page 580 in those Bibles we are handing out to you right now. Titus chapter 3, verses 1. One and two. And we're now entering the final stretch, loved ones. We've almost made it. We are entering the final stretch in our series in Titus entitled God's Heart for the Church. And the focus of this series was to answer the question what is the blueprint God has given for what a healthy church and healthy believers are to look like? And as we enter into this last chapter, it's so important we remember the focus, the emphasis that Paul is writing to Titus for. What is this book for? It is for equipping the church for effective evangelism through giving instruction on how to live selfless, loving, and godly lives that contrast the immoral lifestyles of society. So let's bring us up to snuff. If this is your first time here, let's give you a little recap of where we've been. We talked in Titus chapter 1 about how we are called, if we're going to live effectively on evangelism, we need to live on mission from our identity in Christ under the mandate of Christ. And then from living on mission, what spurs that up? Well, godly leadership in Titus chapter 1, 4 to 9, and those that God calls to lead the church. And then from there, we talked about effective evangelism means we're going to be contending for the faith 
Contending for the faith with sound doctrine. Remember this. Do not forget this, loved ones. Right doctrine fuels right belief. And right belief fuels right behavior. All right? Right doctrine fuels right belief. And right belief fuels right behavior. And so we looked at what lifestyles then of sound doctrine look like. Over a two-week span, what does it mean to live lives of sound doctrine? And then last week, so beautiful, we looked at how the gospel is the basis. The gospel is the basis for all godly living. And the truth we saw so clearly is that we can't live godly lives without the power of God. It's impossible. We can't manufacture that. You, you and I cannot even have a hope to live godly lives without the power of God fueling that. Why? Because it is the gospel, the true gospel, not the distorted, not the twisted gospels, the false gospels that so often are being proclaimed today, but the true gospel that empowers us to be zealous for good works in our witness for Jesus Christ. And to make something abundantly clear from last week, we're going to say it again. I'm going to put it on the screen so we etch this in our mind and in our hearts. Good works that Paul is speaking of here are not the means of our salvation, but they are the mark of our salvation. They are not the means to salvation. We're not earning salvation in Jesus by how well we do. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. But the zealous good works, what are the good works? The God works. The God-inspired works in us by his power, they are the mark of our salvation. And so here in chapter 3, Paul reminds us of the marks of true gospel living. He circles back. So he's done this little gospel interlude here as the basis for God living, and now he's circling back to what the marks of true gospel living are that we must increasingly, notice the word increasingly, you never hit your godly work ceiling, okay? You never get there on this side of eternity. Increasingly display, if we are to live as effective witnesses for Jesus Christ in an increasingly hostile world. We don't have to be afraid, loved ones. This is not a time for fear. This is a time for faith. Taking God at his word, that if God says, this is what I promised to draw men to myself through as my power is worked out on you, we need to pay attention to that. It's not like God's like, well, I didn't see 2019 happening. He knows what he's doing. And he's given the blueprint that we are to follow if we are to be healthy believers in healthy church. Right? And you say, well, why is it so important that the Apostle Paul would unpack that for the first two chapters and take this interlude and now circle back? Why would he devote the last chapter to this? Because here's why. There's a problem. There's a problem in first century when this is getting written, and there's a problem in the 21st century today. And it is this. Increasing numbers of people claiming to be Christians are living scared and not prepared in being a witness for Jesus Christ. We're living scared and not prepared to be a witness for Jesus Christ. We look at the world around us and we get fearful and we backtrack. Do I really believe God will use what he says he will use? We're scared and not prepared. And the result is, instead of living lives that are rooted in and increasingly bearing marks of the true gospel, those claiming to be Christians increasingly bear the marks of the culture around them and are compromising their witness for Christ. So often we use the term in the name of relevance. Careful, loved ones. 
Which are you? Increasingly scared or increasingly prepared? If I could sum all that up, I'd say there's less distinction from the culture and more immersion in it, individually and corporately. And so here in our text today, we see two marks of gospel living that we must embrace and increasingly display by the power of the Holy Spirit if we are to be effective in our witness for Christ and see him glorified by advancing his kingdom through our lives. You guys ready? Ready? He's going to advance his kingdom by drawing people to himself by his power through our lives. That's pretty amazing. Let's stand to honor the authority of God's word as we read verses 1 and 2. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Be ready for every good work. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Hear the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, a life rooted in the gospel increasingly lives, mark number one we see in this text is this, with submission to all authority. With submission to all authority. And the question that you and I are confronted with from this truth is this. I submit to God, know this, know this. I submit to God when I submit to my authorities. Am I submitting willingly? Am I submitting willingly? Look at verse one again. Remind them, Paul says, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. Let's get our context. First century, 62 to 64 AD. Apostle Paul, remember, he planted churches, planted churches all over the island of Crete. And they're approximately two to three years old at this place. And so here you'll see a picture of Crete. We'll recap this. This is in southern Greece. It's about 160 miles across the island. All right, and here he is planting churches with his son in the faith, Titus. Now remember Crete, remember Crete is known for its immoral lifestyle, okay? It's a, it's a very intensely immoral culture. In fact, in verse 12 of chapter 1, if you remember, one of their own prophets or poets, that means, who was highly respected in their culture, characterized them as gluttonous, lazy, liars, hypocrites, because of these new age philosophies that they were taking on. Because of the level of sexual immorality that was increasing in their culture. Because of their rebellion against authority. Wait, did I just describe Crete or did I describe today? There's nothing new under the sun. And so see, the church is at risk right now. These believers are not grounded in sound doctrine. They're being pulled and tossed. In fact, as we saw in chapter one, entire households are being overthrown by every wind and wave of doctrine from these false teaching that is gaining traction and the false teachers that are promoting the immoral lifestyle of the culture and saying this was Christian living. And thereby, what are they doing? They're compromising the evangelistic witness of the church to the culture around it. And the church, as a result, was having a very bad rap in society. Church has a bad rap. What's the difference? There's no difference between them and they're calling us out on stuff? I don't think so. That's why Paul starts this final chapter by emphasizing one of the major characteristics. Get this, loved ones. He's repeating it again from chapter two. One of the major characteristics of the gospel-empowered life. 
one that would stand out from the increasingly hostile and rebellious culture around them. And he tells Titus in verse one, did you catch that? To remind the church, remind the believers, because he's taught it before, but remind them now to be submissive to the rulers and authorities that were over them. Now for some of us, maybe even in this room, that goes down like vinegar when we think of that. Submissive to authorities, okay. What does that term submissive mean? The Greek means this, you'll see it on the screen. To place oneself under one's leadership or authority. He's already taught this in Titus chapter two, but, and in the specific context that we're looking at, that he's writing in, he's talking to Titus about submitting to the governing authorities of Crete, which were ultimately under the authority of Rome. He's telling them to submit to their earthly rulers. And by extension, the principle for us today is no different. It's the same, but it extends to all authority that God has established over us. Our government. When we're, we have a lot of students in this church, our classroom, our teachers, our administrators, submitting to that authority. Here's another one. Uh, in our workplace, our bosses, our superintendents, called to submit to them, submitting to authority in the church, the authorities that God has established. And Paul is urging a submitted life that brings glory and honor to God by honoring the authorities. Here's why. Because those authorities, every authority in your life and mine, is not there by accident. It is instituted by God himself. And so submitting to those authorities is submitting to God. You'll see that. On the screen, submission to God demands submission to the authorities he's established. This is not an option. Submitting to God demands submission to the authorities he has established. And here's the thing. Remember this, loved ones. It's not based on when you feel like it. That's not true submission. Well, it's easy to submit to him now, so now I'm going to submit. No. No, it's, it's not based on when it's easy to do. It's not based on when you feel comfortable doing it. It's not based on when you think it's fair or when your boss or overseer has treated you fairly. It's not based on that, when you think they deserve it. It's not based on when you agree with them in what they ask you to do and how they ask you to do it. There's one exception. One exception that we see in scripture is that when an authority over you asks you to do something that would sin against the Lord by a command that would cause us to disobey God's word. But I think if you and I look at the things that our authorities ask us to do, most of them don't fit that category. Most of our lack of submission is just our pride. And so what's the result of this? Why does Paul go right here? Why does he go back to this one? Because of course they would stand out. Of course they would have lives of distinction. Just like today, the Cretan culture didn't promote submission to authority. It promoted a rebellion against authority. As long as that authority wasn't you. It promoted rebellion against the government. It promoted rebellion in the home. It promoted rebellion in the workplace, rebellion in the church. Don't worry about your church leaders. Just do what you want. They don't know what they're doing. 
Yet Paul reminds the church of this because he knows what we must know today, church. That as we submit to the authorities God has placed over us, we are ultimately submitting to him because he is the one who had the final say in putting those authorities over us. He had the final say. And he put them there. Here's, you ever think of this? He put every authority in your life over you for your good and for his glory. We know that. Romans 13, 1 and 2 just says this. Let every person be subject, that means be submissive, to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. No authority in your life except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Submission's a big deal to God. And now notice, notice something when I was thinking about this. I got to chuckle about this this week in prep. Um, notice God didn't consult you or I in our wisdom for who we thought we should have. Ever notice that? It's not like God came down and said, hey, who do you think you should have as your boss? Hey, who do you think you should have as your parents, kids? Just tell me. Like, he didn't consult you or I and our wisdom about who would be easy for us, who we would like to have. He knew in his perfect wisdom who we needed, who we needed to have for him to show his glory most powerfully through us as we submit to them and see him draw others to himself through that by his power. 1 Peter 2, 13 and 15, you'll see it on the screen, says this, be subject, that is be submitted for the Lord's sake. Not for your pride, not for your status, for the Lord's sake. To every human institution. For this is the will of God. You say, what's the will of God in my situation right now? Submit to your authority. Because you're submitting to God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What is the ignorance? The accusations. All Christians are all just hypocrites. And all Christians this. They're no different from the culture. Listen, no bad reputation when they say beautiful gospel submission. And we must understand this, loved ones. We submit to God when we submit to our authorities. Question, are you submitting willingly? Willingly. And you may say this, well, what does this even look like practically? We want to be as clear as possible. Let's drill down. What does willing submission look like? Willing submission. Well, gospel submission, the first thing we see right out of the text is this. We need to obey willingly. Verse 1, obey willingly. Look at it again. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. Obedient. The Greek word for obedience there means this, to conform to advice. To conform to advice or to follow a superior. Again, not just when their counsel, not just when their direction agrees with what you want to hear. Okay? Follow a superior, conform to advice. It is doing things the way they want them done. Again, as long as it means they're not asking you to disobey God's word. Let's get some clarity. 
You say, well, wait a second. Does that mean I can never like express my opinion? And I'm just kind of a yes man. Chill for a sec, loved ones here. This doesn't mean you can never lovingly, keyword, lovingly express your opinion. But it means you aren't basing your submission to them upon whether or not they take your opinion. Big difference. Sure, you can express, hey, should we try it this way? Here's something I thought of. What do you think? And I was like, no, nah, I don't like that idea. Okay. So, fine, see you later. Right, right? That's what our flesh wants to do. That's what it wants to do. You're not listening to me? Why would I bother submitting to you? Really? We so often think we see the whole picture. It's not basing your submission to them upon whether or not they take your opinion. This is not, willing obedience is not a forced obedience, but a willing one that comes from the heart and isn't just the action. Remember a few weeks ago, I used that illustration, used to be a school teacher, and then, and then you see those kids who would who'd be in class and teacher's like, hey, you need to sit down now, Billy. You need to sit down. And he's like, no. Yeah, Billy, you need to sit down now. No. Billy, you need to sit down now. No. Billy, you're going to the principal's office you don't sit down. Fine. I'm going to sit down on the outside, but inside I'm still standing. That's just like us. I'm going to, fine, I'll submit. That's not submission in God's eyes. True submission in God's eyes is willing submission, which is from the heart. Because from the overflow of the heart, the mouth is going to speak, the mind is going to think, the hands are going to act. Willing submission. A willing obedience. Okay, so what does this look like? Let's drill down a little bit more. Willing obedience. Here it is. Ready? Doesn't grumble. This is like we're going to get a doctrine of obedience here. Okay? We're going to scan what God's word has to say. Willing obedience doesn't grumble. Titus 2.9. Titus 2.9 says this. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own. Submission's a big deal in God's eyes, loved ones are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. So you're not complaining, you're not grumbling, you're not gossiping about people behind their backs. You're not accusing them falsely. You're not even listening to that stuff. So willing obedience doesn't grumble. Here's another thing. Willing obedience we see in Scripture is, is prompt. Is prompt. Look at Titus 2.10. It is not pilfering. That means not stealing. But showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. All good faith means your employer, means your authorities don't have to be looking over your shoulder to make sure that you're doing what you need to do. You're living with integrity. You're living above reproach and you're doing it promptly. Now, what does promptly mean? It means you're not kicking the tires when they ask you to do something, but doing as much as you can when you can. Because in God's eyes, loved ones, even in our walk with him, right? Delayed obedience, what's that? Disobedience. Delayed obedience is just disobedience. We know what we need to do, but we're not prompting it. So willing obedience doesn't grumble. It doesn't complain. It doesn't just do the action. Willing obedience is prompt. Here's another third thing we see in God's word. Willing obedience is thankful for the opportunity to serve Christ. Willing obedience is thankful 
Look at Colossians 2, 6, and 7. We started out in our call to worship. Therefore, as you have received Jesus Christ, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, their sound doctrine, and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, oh, I love this right here at the end, abounding in thanksgiving. It is thankful for the opportunity that we have to serve Christ. The one who is walking in willing obedience isn't saying this. The mindset isn't, I have to serve or I have to work. The mindset is, I get to, and I don't deserve to. I get to go to work. How would that change our attitude on that drive-in when you're on the bus? When you're driving in, you know that coworker's going to be waiting for you. How, do you how, how would that change? I get to do this. This is actually a privilege that I don't deserve, and it's only by the grace of Jesus Christ I have it. Instead of, oh, I have to go to work. We are bounding in thanksgiving. It's so helpful to remember that you and I don't deserve any of the opportunities we have to serve the Lord. In the church, in our homes, in our workplaces. Fourthly is this. We see willing obedience doesn't grumble or complain. We don't get our way. Willing obedience is prompt. Willing obedience is thankful. And lastly, willing obedience is expectant. It is expectant that God will use this service for his glory, whether you and I see its impact or not, or whether you and I get recognition for it. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always, always, like always, like every day, like every moment, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing this, be encouraged with this, when you hit the workplace tomorrow, knowing that in the Lord, not on your own strength, not in you trying to fashion things the way you want, but in the Lord, by his power of his life rooted in the gospel, your labor is not in vain. God never works in isolation, always in multiplication. It's not in vain. You say, but I don't see anything happening. God does. We see this little sliver, eh? This little sliver in time, and we think we see the whole picture. God's doing 10 billion things right now that you and I don't even see. So who are we to say nothing's happening? Right? It's expectant. I don't know, but your word's going to go forth, and I'm living out your word by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you're going to give me opportunities to proclaim the gospel, and we're just going to sow the seed. Remember, our duty is not to save. Our duty is to sow. Our duty is not to save. Our duty is to sow by the power of the Holy Spirit. So question, are you living with a willing obedience, a willing obedience, not just going through the test, but a willing one from the heart to the authorities God has established over you? Just look at that list and ask yourself, where do I need to repent? Where do I need to repent? Don't fight it, loved ones. Just bring it before the Lord right now. Say, that's me. There's never condemnation on the other side of repentance. There's only comfort. Where do you need to repent? So the first thing we see here, marks of gospel living, gospel obedience, is that there's a willing obedience And the second thing we see in the text here is that um, gospel submission doesn't just obey willingly, it serves readily. 
It serves readily. Look at verse one again. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, oh, here it is, to be ready, to be ready for every good work. The Greek word for ready there means this, to be prepared, standing by to meet the challenge at hand, prepared in heart and prepared in hand for doing every good work. What's a good work? We said at the start, God works Every good work that God has put in front of us to do as we are able. Not just when it's comfortable for us, loved ones. Not just when it's convenient for us. Not just when it's easy for us. But ready for every good work. The ones that stretch us. The ones that we're afraid to take. And it's call for faith, not fear, to step into them. I love how Ephesians 2.10 says this. You'll see it on the screen. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. There it is again. Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not shirk them, not complain about them, not avoid them, but the good works that God has placed right in front of us to do. One commentator put it this way. He said, a Christian should be always ready to do good as far as they are able. Doesn't mean you have to try to meet every single need. You're gonna burn out. But what are the good works that God has put in front of you? That he's put right in front of you. As far as you are able. He should not, the Christian should not need to be urged or coaxed or persuaded, but should be so ready always to do good that they will count it a privilege to have the opportunity to do it. Whether they're seen or not. Question, are you serving readily? Are you prepared for those good works? Are you stepping into them when the needs God has shown you right in front of you, there's an opportunity for you. Are you taking it readily? Counting it a privilege for you? Or is our mindset, is our heart set? Well, I have to, and it's more of a burden. See, what opportunities for good works has God put right in front of you right now, church? That he's calling you to be ready to step into in your workplace. Maybe that coworker needs that word of encouragement. Maybe it's working with greater intentionality and integrity, using, making the best use of time and not flitting it away at the workplace. Maybe it's not taking extended time on your breaks when you've been given 15 minutes. What is it? What's the good works in the workplace? That word of encouragement, that prayer for that coworker, what is it? How about here in the church? What are the good works? There's over 40 kids down the hall right now. That's over 40 opportunities for good works that God has put in front of you. Are we stepping in readily, loved ones? Or how about setting up the chairs you're sitting on? There's so many good works. Are we stepping into them readily, thinking it's a privilege? How about in your homes? The good works in your homes, discipling your children, encouraging your spouse, loving on them, being gentle with them, laying your life down for them. Whose agenda are we running on? See, a life rooted in the gospel increasingly lives with submission to all authority 
But it doesn't mean, loved ones right here, submitting, just submitting to all authority. It also means, last point today, it also means living with humility. Living with humility before all people. And the question we're confronted with from this last point is this. Humility is the fruit of gospel root. Let me say it again. Humility is the fruit of gospel root. Where do I need to humble myself? Humility is the fruit of gospel root. Where do I need to humble myself? Look at verse two. And let's just read one and two again. So good. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Here it is. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Talk about a high standard. Right Here, Paul instructs believers in this verse to show, that means to display in word and act a perfect courtesy to all people. This command right here sums up everything that we've talked about so far. This is the summation of everything that we've talked about because the word courtesy there, you know what that means? The Greek word means to show humility, to show meekness. Not just to your authorities. Now Paul expands it out to people, all people in general. It's not just submitting to those or showing courtesy or humbling yourself to those that you get along with or that you like to be around in your tribe or your clique, but to all people who cross our paths, especially with unbelievers. Why? Because this is a witness for Christ. This world promotes pride. Have it your way. Do what you want. You deserve the best. Christ says, you must decrease if I'm going to increase. We need to walk in humility, loved ones, with your kids. It's one of the most humbling things in the world. went through this again this week where I sit across from my four-year-old and I say, will you please forgive daddy for being impatient? Talk about humbling. With our children, we're to humble ourselves. Here's with kids down the hall, when you see them running down the hall in a few minutes, right? With your brothers and sisters in Christ around you. Well, I'll wait for them to come to me. No, 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 no. You go to them, you humble yourself in how you speak, in how you care for them. With our spouses, it's with people of different skin color. I love this church. I love the multiculturalism in this church. The gospel is for all, and we are called to humble ourselves before all in love and in grace and kindness and perfect humility. To our neighbors, students, to your roommates. Now let's get, let's get clarity so we all know what humility is. We hear that word a lot around here. Praise the Lord for that. I pray that never changes. But let's make sure we all know what it means. Clarity, humility. This is a conscious choice of placing others ahead of ourselves. Humility is a choice. Humility does not happen naturally. I must choose to humble myself under the mighty hand of the Lord. I must choose to humble myself under my spouse, under my brother and sister, saying, and if I could sum up humility, it would just be this, you before me. If submitting to authority means me under you, humility means you before me. Your desires before mine, your needs being met before mine. How many marriages would look differently if we walked in humility? 
How would the church look differently if we walked in humility and chose to humble? It's not, well, you did this and I'll... Not based on how they respond. It's based on our command before the Lord to show perfect courtesy, humility before all. See, we are to be, and he unpacks this. What does this perfect humility look like? Here it is. Verse two, respectful, not slanderous. Gospel humility is respectful and not slanderous. See there in verse two, to speak evil of no one. To speak evil of no one. It's not speaking evil of people by gossiping or reviling them or making accusations about them. Well, they did this, so I had to act this way. Nuh-uh. That's not what God will bless. But it's speaking with integrity about them and honoring them with our speech. One of the litmus that I use for this is this. Is the conversation, if I'm talking about someone and they're not in the conversation, if I'm talking about someone, am I leaving that person with a higher opinion of the one I'm speaking of? Use that as a litmus. Speaking honor, speaking integrity with our speech. So we are respectful, not slanderous, but we also see here gospel humility means we are peaceful, not argumentative. See there in the text, look again, go back to the text, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, It's not argumentative. We avoid causing or engaging in an argument with others. We're not trying to, what gospel humility means is we're not trying to posture ourselves. We're not trying to just throw our weight around to get what we want or to make that impression. We're not trying to get our own way all the time. Here's what gospel humility means. If we're peaceful, not argumentative, we are quick to listen and not to speak. How many conflicts would be avoided in our homes, in our churches, in our workplace if we just took James 1.19 seriously? Be slow to speak and quick to listen. In your anger, do not sin. Slow to speak. That's what being peaceful, not argumentative is. You're listening. You are quick not to speak, not to retaliate. You are quick to listen. And you're not just listening to answer. We have this real issue in the age of social media where we've really forgotten how to listen right. We want to listen just to answer the question. How many parents with your kids, I know you're rushed sometimes. I get it. I know you're tired. You're just like, I just want to get an answer done. I just want to answer myself. I just want to answer my coworker. I just want to answer my class. Listen, are we listening to answer or listening to understand? There's a huge difference there. To understand the heart, to understand the struggle, to understand the discouragement. Are we listening to understand? You start walking in this, in the power of the Holy Spirit, watch what happens to those relationships with your coworkers. Because the sad truth is, nobody's expecting you to listen. Because that's not what the culture promotes. It's be heard. We are quick to listen, to understand. We are quick to forgive. We are quick to forgive. And when that hurt comes up again, we cast it on the Lord again and say, I choose to forgive. I choose to forgive. Forgiveness doesn't mean forgetfulness. I choose to forgive, though, because Christ has forgiven me, and he's given me the power to not hold something over you. We're quick to forgive. We don't hold a grudge against a person. And we live peaceably with others so far as it depends on us in word and deed, Romans 12, 18. So far as it depends on you, live at peace. You take the initiative. Don't wait for that other person to come to you. You go to them. Hey, spouses, where do you need to go to your spouse right now? 
Stop digging in your heels. Brothers and sisters in Christ, just stop digging in your heels. Where do you need to go to them insofar as it depends on you and live at peace? This is gospel humility. This is why, because it's radical. It's not normal. Finally, gospel humility is respectful, not slanderous, peaceful, not argumentative. And number three we see here, gentle, not domineering. Just keep reading the text. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, and here it is, to be gentle, to be gentle. What does the word gentle there mean? It means you're mild-mannered. You're not flying off the handle. Hey, question. Do people have to walk around pins and needles when they're around you? If you're like, well, no, they totally don't. Have you asked them? Have you asked them lately? Because they're afraid you're going to lose your temper. You're afraid you're going to demean them or criticize them. Do Do your kids have to do that, parents? Ask them. And repent and ask them to pray for you for gospel humility. It means being gentle, not domineering, means we are considerate and patient with others. We're not trying to get our own way with them. We're not trying to push our own agenda and ideas all the time. Whether it's the youngest child, the oldest senior, or everyone in between. Yes, help us, Lord. Philippians 2, 3 to 4 says this. Do nothing. That is like, you know what the Greek word for nothing is? Nothing. It means like nothing, okay? Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Nothing with your spouse out of selfish ambition. Nothing with your classmates. Nothing with your roommates. Nothing with your kids. Nothing in your small group. Nothing in your service team. Like nothing. Talk about a high bar. Without without selfish ambition or, or conceit. But in, here's a beautiful word, humility. You before me can count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I love the fact that we have a team from Hope Oakville here today. We're doing just that, helping out flood victims the last number of days. It's beautiful. It's beautiful gospel witness, being the hands and feet of Jesus. Now, now think about this today. Think about this today. Just ask the question. Do you... Loved ones, do you think others would take notice of this if we live this way in our society? Do do you think they'd take notice and be drawn to the Savior by Christ's power as we put others ahead of ourselves? This is God's evangelism strategy. Just like Christ laid his life down for us in our workplace, caring for those coworkers not competing with them to see if you can get that promotion, but caring for them, loving them, being patient with them, listening to them. Gospel witness. How about this? In the classroom, students working with integrity, not cheating on your test, making the best use of the time, submitting work with excellence, and not just, well, I'll just give the last bit of my energy here. Excellence. How about in your marriage? Hey, it's Father's Day today. Praise the Lord. Men, love you, love you. Here's the thing. Here's the thing with that, though. Men, we are called to model Christ to our families, to our wives. Now, here's the thing with that. What does that look like? Mark 10, 42 to 45 says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So my question for you men is this. On Father's Day, the world says it's all about you. No, Christ reverses that and says, what are you making your family for dinner? I love the eyes of the women in this room. 
<laughs> That's amazing, right? That's amazing. Men, seriously, what are you doing to lay your life down for your family? If that means you gotta call Domino's and say, get it over here, then do that. All right, seriously, what are you doing to lay your life down for your family? Because we are called to model Jesus. It's not about you. It's all about him. Gentle, not domineering. How about this? What would this look like? What impact could this have in our neighborhoods when we see that neighbor who's just struggling to make ends meet and we go and cut their grass? What about this? When... What gospel witness would this be when you're in the grocery store and your kids start having a meltdown in the aisle and the people around you are expecting you to lose it and they see gospel gentleness and patience? What witness does that have? I was in a store the other day and we had our four boys there and they just keep trekking in and everyone's like, oh, the first two are all cute. Then you get to number four and they're like, they're all yours. (laughs) Listen to this. Listen to this. Here's the reality though. They said, they're all yours? I'm like, yeah, praise the Lord. And she's like, if I were you, I'd be in that liquor store. I'm like, actually, no, we're just on our knees begging for help. She's like, what's that all about? Let me tell you. See, it doesn't take much. People notice lives of distinction. How about this? When you're in that suffering and that trial when you're going through that sickness, when someone hurts you, when you're going through that discouragement, and instead of just keeping your eyes so focused on yourself, you're saying, yes, I'm suffering. Yes, I'm hurting, but it's you before me. I am choosing right now by the power of God to humble myself before you. And they're like, you should be the one being served. What are you doing serving everybody else? Because I have a savior who served me. There's the reality, loved ones. People notice that. It's not normal. This is the mark of the life rooted in the gospel. Loved ones, write this down. Last quote on the board today, it's this. Humility is the undeniable fruit of gospel root. Humility is the undeniable root of gospel, undeniable fruit of gospel root. And oh yeah, by the way, did you notice how we're to do this? Just go back to the text. Verse two, uh, we're called to do it perfectly. Uh oh like perfectly, like every time. Okay, so wait, wait, question on the follow-up of that. How's that working for you? How's that working for me? You doing it perfectly, loved ones? Is anyone besides me thinking right now that we need a savior? Is that anyone, anyone? Maybe just me, yeah, I love the hand, yes. Yes, we need the savior right now because doing this in our own strength is completely impossible. It is completely impossible. That's why scripture goes on to say in Philippians 2 verse 5, it says that we are to have this mind, the mind of humility among ourselves in Christ Jesus, the one who fulfilled each of these marks perfectly, the son of God who displayed perfect submission to the will of the father by coming to earth as fully God and fully man and then perfectly humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Talk about the greatest act of humility ever. The king of kings goes to the cross for you and me. 
to pay the penalty for our sin, which was death and separation from God in hell for eternity. And he rose again three days later to give the free gift of salvation to all who repent of their sin and confess him as their Lord and Savior. Not just know about Jesus, but who have responded to Jesus. Have you responded to Jesus today, loved ones? That is the free gift of salvation that he is offering. And if you're here and you've never made that decision, your first step to living a life that is marked by the gospel is to be filled with the power of the gospel through salvation in him. And I love that you say, well, I gotta clean myself up. No, you don't. Today, when you hear his voice, scripture says, do not harden your heart. Let today be the day of your salvation. He sees you right there and he's like, I went to the cross for you. Come, come to me, taste and see that I am good. And believers, if you've made that decision, final question, where does your life not reflect the life being lived rooted in the gospel? Can we just put those uh, points back up there, please, team? Just the points of the sermon. There you go. Gospel humility. Where does it, where does it look not look like a life being rooted in the gospel? Where do you need to repent of your pride and ask Christ to give you the strength to submit to your authorities willingly and walk in humility before others that he would display his power through you and draw people, yes, that hardened coworker that you don't think has a chance, will draw people to himself as they would see Christ exalted over all. He who called you is faithful, loved ones. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. I thank you, God, that you just don't tell us how you desire us to live and then leave us on our own. But you sent your son Jesus Christ to die for us that we would be saved from our sin and have the power in him to live in you the life that you desire for us. And God, although we will never be perfect on this side of eternity, thank you that you have begun a good work and will see it through to completion in us by the power of your Holy Spirit as we don't strive for the perfection, but in perseverance in the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Jesus Christ, may you be exalted in our homes. Jesus Christ, may you be exalted in our lives. Jesus Christ, may you be exalted in our workplaces. Jesus Christ, may you be exalted in our neighborhoods. Jesus Christ, may you be exalted in our classrooms. Jesus Christ, may you be exalted in our homes, exalted over all, exalted over self, exalted over our agendas, exalted over our sin. Jesus Christ, you would be exalted over all. This we declare today, saying, God, help us. More of you, less of us. You must increase. We must decrease. In Jesus' name, amen.